Welcome to the Yukon RUF podcast. RUF at Yukon is a ministry that relies completely on the financial support of churches and individuals like you in order to serve the Yukon community. You can support RUF at Yukon by going to ruf.org slash Yukon. Okay, guys, welcome again to RUF. Glad you could make it. Thanks for coming. I know this is a busy, overwhelming time of the semester, and it might not be the easiest thing to get out to RUF, but I appreciate you being here. And uh, at RUF, we say often we're a Christian community, and being a Christian community uh, means, first of all, that we look to Christ. We look to Jesus as our hope, as our source of truth, as our source of life, the means by which we can uh, be the people we were meant to be, love others, uh, live for God. And uh, the other component of being a Christian community is that everyone can come uh, and explore Jesus, just as Jesus invited everyone uh, to come and see. And so uh, my hope is that uh, some would come that are exploring who Jesus is and maybe haven't yet put their faith in Jesus, but uh, are willing to ask good questions and uh, explore who Jesus says he is and what he taught. And it's my hope that others would come that uh, do believe and would seek to grow and seek to be challenged and ultimately to serve uh, the Lord with all of their life and grow in that. So uh, that's what RUF is about. And this semester we're looking at the book of Ephesians, uh, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. And our series is called Grace changes everything. And it's, you know, this idea of grace that we talk about a lot in RUF. Uh, sometimes you might hear me have heard me say, uh, grace, uh, we're never uh, so good that we outgrow our need of God's grace. And we're never so bad that we outgrow uh, the reach of God's grace. And uh, what grace means is it's a gift. Uh, life with God is a gift. Uh, we, don't, we could never earn our way to God, but God gives uh, himself freely to us. And uh, so we're looking at this book, Ephesians, this letter. And uh, if you were here last week, you might remember that it was written by Paul from prison, or at least he was locked up in some form or fashion in Rome. And uh, he's writing this, Paul had been an opponent of Christianity, hated Christians, until he met Jesus, and then his life was transformed, and he traveled the world starting churches, and one of the churches he started was in Ephesus, and uh, he went on to start other churches around the known world, and was eventually imprisoned for his faith, and, and so he writes to them from Rome, uh, locked up. And what we saw last week at the beginning of this letter that he wrote to these people that he loves is that he couldn't stop going off about God's grace. Uh, he could not st- stop going off about how overwhelming God's grace was. And tonight, after that outburst, that delightful outburst of grace, uh, he prays for them. So he talks about how great grace is, and then he says, uh, he prays for them in the passage we're going to look at tonight. So let me read it for us. It says, uh, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, uh, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let me pray for us one more time. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we come now to your word, uh, we pray that it would be life to us. We pray that uh, you would bear fruit in our hearts as we study it. Uh, make us different, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I saw Gino on campus this week. Anybody seen Gino, Coach Gino Oriema, women's basketball coach? I've been here a long time and I've never seen... I, I love Gino. Like, I, I have a man crush on Gino Oriema. I just think he's amazing, you know, like the success he's had as a coach and basketball. He's essentially like one of the best coaches of any sport of all time. And so it was fun to see him on campus. And I, a while back I heard a story that, about like how he uh, gets his players ready to go, how he trains them up. And uh, he told, it was in an interview, he told the story about how sometimes what he does with a player is he says, hey, go, like, they're standing on the end line of the basketball court. And he's like, run to the end line and come back. And they do it. And then he pulls out a crisp $100 bill out of his wallet. And he says, I'll give you this $100 if you can do it in 10 seconds. And he goes, go. And, you know, the girl shoots off faster than before and comes back. And right before she gets to the end line, he goes, 10. And she's all disappointed, like, what the heck? And he said, you weren't running, you were running for you. You weren't running for me. He's like, you should have been running that way before. And, which is kind of harsh, right? He's a tough, tough guy. Uh, but Gino is a genius because he's taking his players somewhere. Like, he knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, he's won enough championships to know what it takes to be great. And so that's an example of he knows that you're not going to be great if your coach tells you to run and you don't do it your best. You're not going to be elite. Uh, so he's taking his players somewhere to a championship, and he knows what they need to get there. I want you to think about God and you. Where does God want to take you? What's God's goal for you? Uh, that's kind of what this passage is getting at tonight. You know, what is Paul? Paul's talking about what he wants for these. They're already Christians, these, this group of people that he's praying for. Uh, how does he pray for them? What does he want for them? Uh, and what we see and what I've kind of underlined a little bit for you in this passage is uh, he wants them to know Jesus and his salvation, to know it. And it's interesting that he doesn't pray for other things. You know, like what could he, he could have prayed, for instance, that the persecution they were enduring would stop. You know, what we know about Christianity in this part of the world was that many Christians were thrown to the lions or into the gladiator ring or and endured all kinds of suffering. And so Paul, Paul could have prayed for, there's a lot of 
things he could have prayed for to change circumstances. And yet instead, he just prays that they would know Jesus and his salvation, uh, his grace. I wonder, have you ever come to know, received a piece of knowledge that changed everything for you? When I think of a piece of knowledge I gained that changed everything for me, I think about finding out that my wife was pregnant the first time. And it's interesting when that happened, because, you know, you get the, in case you don't know, the woman pees on a stick, and, uh, and then you get, the, you get the, whatever, the two lines or whatever. And, and that's the moment when I found out I'm a dad. I now know I'm a dad. But then there's the ultrasound, and you see your baby, and that's like a new level of knowing that you're a dad. You're like, whoa. And then you hear the heartbeat, and it's like, it's alive. And, but you don't, like, and I can remember not, I didn't fully know because, like, there, was, there were times when I was, like, making plans for vacation, and Maggie was like, we're going to have, like, a two-week-old that week that you're talking about. And I was like, oh, yeah, like, we, yeah, I'm a dad. And then, and then you sign the forms in the hospital that, like, you know, say you're the dad. And it's this whole level of knowing. And it, it never really stops. I can remember feeling this way as we signed up my daughter for kindergarten. Being like, I'm the one who decides. I guess I should think about her education more, right? Because uh, I'm, the, I'm the dad. So I'm, I'm grow. I knew it. Nine, you know, eight months before she was born, that I was a dad. But I, I now have a level of knowledge of being a dad that I didn't, that I'm growing in. And Paul's saying that when you become a Christian, you come to know Jesus, and you know His salvation. But the knowledge is just in seed form. Uh, we need, we need to come to really know. Have the knowledge that's have it driven deeper into us and God wants to take us with all our sin and all our brokenness and all our selfishness and all our divided loyalties and make us into someone beautiful and holy and pure and selfless and that's more important than anything and it can only happen as we come to really know you know know on the experiential level know on the level that's just driven deep and that's what we're going to be talking about is how you know and paul highlights three aspects of this knowledge in our passage he highlights hope underlined for you tonight hope riches or value and power so that's what we're going to talk about tonight just those three things hope value and power and the first is hope in verse 18, he, he, we're kind of working with verse 18 a lot today. He prays that they would come to know the hope uh, to which he has called you. And I want you to just think about hope for a little bit. I think a hope feels a little bit cheesy sometimes, huh? Like only suckers really hope. Or, you know, the cynic immediately pops up in me when I think about hoping. Because, I don't know, maybe because I've been burned too many times. Or it feels like, you know, it would be foolish to hope. But biblical hope is not cheesy. Biblical hope actually starts out with a basic idea that's really not cheesy, which is that we live in a really messed up world. Like the Bible is utterly realistic about how messed up this world is. Because in the Bible, there was a, the creation account tells of a good world, a world where everything worked in harmony and where people were not alienated from one another and especially not alienated from God. 
And what a far cry that is from today. You know, a world where there's violence and there's racism and there's division and UConn students commit suicide and all these awful things that are just part of life here in our world. The Bible's really realistic about it. Paul, even in another letter in 1 Corinthians, says this. uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. Because you get the point there, right? Because this life only is not very good. There's good parts, but it's not ultimately good. Uh, I read a while back about a man named Viktor Frankl who survived the Holocaust. He survived life in a concentration camp during the Holocaust. And he was actually a neurologist and a psychiatrist. And so he did some study observation while in the camps and study after his time in the camps about what made some people in the concentration camps kind of just wither away and die while others somehow made it through you know what made some people just like fall into despair and what made other people persevere and live ultimately and the answer that he found was that it was you, you had to have a meaning that, was, that transcended this world. Because the people who, you know, if, if, the world, if my hope is in this world alone and the world is this evil, then I got nothing, right? It makes sense, doesn't it? But if, 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 your, hope, if, you, if your life has meaning that is from outside this world, if your hope is outside this world, then you can be very resilient. And some of these people even were. So what's our hope? What we looked at last week is really our hope. God is gracious. He's both holy and gracious, and he's called us to be his forever. He's called us to be with him in all of his glory forever. All, and what that means is all that is sad is one day going to come untrue. Everything sad about this life is not permanent. There's something better. And this isn't just like, you know, pie in the sky, hope, you know, blind faith, but it's actually rooted in something that's happened here on earth where Jesus was crucified and died publicly and where his tomb was empty on the third day. It's the source of our hope. And verse 18 even highlights that we've been called to this hope. It's really important. You were called to this hope. Because what it's saying is that you were once out. We were out. These Ephesians were out. And then they were called by God to hope again. And he said, this is your hope. I am your hope. I am making all things right. We were people that had no hope. And then we were given hope that can't be taken away from us. I wonder... Think about this. What, what, will become, what will we become as we become people that know this hope? How will be people, I think, that are bold, right? If you have a hope that's that good, that's that solid, you'll be bold. Because what does it matter, right? Rejection? Who cares? Failure? It's a minor failure. Uh, we'll be people that are generous, because what's the reason that we're not generous? Because it's like, well, I want to make sure there's enough for me. But if our hope is Christ, if our hope is God's grace, what that means is that we have all the riches. 
we're not going to be poor ever. And we can be generous, extremely generous. Uh, we, we can be resilient like we were talking about, right? Uh, face the challenges of life. And, you know, they don't, like, life, the Bible is very realistic about how hard life can be. Uh, but we don't get rattled as much to our core if our hope is elsewhere. Uh, and ultimately, we can be joyful, right? We can experience joy in the midst of sorrow, like the Bible talks about. Not that, oh, I'm just going to, like, don't worry, be happy is not really biblical advice. Uh, because that doesn't take seriously the sadness of our world. But joy is, is just an underlying current uh, really related to hope. I have a life that's elsewhere. I can be resilient. Uh, so uh, that's hope. But the next thing he talk, wants these Ephesians to know is value. And it's really interesting in verse 18. He says, uh, what, so the hope to which he has called you, what are, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And last week we talked about how uh, we have an inheritance that all of, that God has belongs to us. But this is actually saying something different. This is, saying, this is talking not about an inheritance that we get, but it's talking about what God gets. And the amazing thing that it says is that God gets us. Like God's inheritance, the saints is God's people. It's just Christians like us. In other words, Paul wants us to know how valuable we are to him, to God. Like everything beautiful and wonderful in the world belongs to God. And you know what he considers his greatest treasure to be? Us. If you don't believe me, look ahead to the end of this passage where it talks about how the church, God's people, us, is God's fullness. It's, this, it's almost like this extension of him kind of in a way. Uh, the way I think about it is like the way, like speaking of being a new dad, have you ever noticed if you know someone who's a new parent, like how much they post on like social media about like really not that great things that their kid did? Like Tommy rolled over today and he's only six months old. And it's like... No one cares. But, uh, you know, when it's you, when you're the new parent, it's like, this is everything. It's almost like, I, I rolled over. Look how, like, my kid is, it's this, like, and, you know, I've told some of you this before, but, like, I pull out my phone sometimes and just look at my kids. Just look at them. Or sometimes when my wife and I get a night out away from our kids, you know what we talk about? Did you see that cute thing that Asher did the other day? You know, we talk about our kids and how much we love them, okay? Paul's saying that God relates to us like that. That's what, God's people are God's treasure. If you're one of God's people, it means that you are his treasure. It means he pulls out his phone and he's just like, man, Tim is the man. (laughs) Love that guy. How, what a far cry from the way we think of God relating to us, right? Do we ever think of God in these terms of treasuring us? You know, if God delights in you more than I delight in my kids, that's amazing news for us. And what's amazing that he is he loves us at our worst. Like he, he knows us. He sees all of it and he still wants us. Okay, if you come to know your value then, if you come to know your, that you're treasured, how will that change you? Well, the most obvious way it'll change you is that you won't be seeking out value elsewhere anymore. Right? We're all people 
that are desperate to know that we matter. We all walk around. This is just who we are. We're like people that walk around wondering, do I matter? Am I valuable? Uh, Am I worth it? Right? I'm asking this all the time. Am I worth it? Am I worth it? And we'll look to anything to get the answer. Like everyone's looking somewhere to get the answer to the question, am I worth it? It's why we obsess over our GPA. Or whether or not people like us. Whether or not people want to date us. Whether or not companies want to hire us. And we're all, we're just trying to answer this question, do I matter? Am I worth it? And it's exhausting, right? Wondering that. And not to mention the fact that it messes everything up. It messes everything up to not know that you matter. It messes up relationships horribly. Because, you know, if I don't know that I matter, then, you know, when I relate to you, I'm thinking, like, well, what do I need to do to get you to like me? Like, do I have to be, a, I'll be a version of myself that I think you might like? And, and then, you know, that might create distance. Between, like, it's, you can't relate to someone, really, if you don't know that you matter. Because it won't be you. Everything gets messed up. But the good news of the gospel is, first of all, if anyone truly knew you, they would say, no, you don't. You're not worth it. But there's one exception. And it's the one who made you. He says, you're worth dying for. I'll be torn apart to have you. And the more you come to know that truth, the more, the less, first of all, you'll be tempted by any sin, any uh, opposition to this God, and the less you'll try to find value anywhere else besides him. And then everything gets better. Everything is just better when you know that you're cherished by the king. So Paul wants us to know and be changed by, first of all, the hope that we have and the value that we have. And finally, uh, the greatness of his power toward us who believe. And uh, so uh, I want to talk about power for a minute. And this is just amazing. Uh, He says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? Uh, This is an amazing, huge statement because he's saying that the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the greatest power that there is, is now at work in those of us who believe. What does it mean? What does that mean? Uh, here's the big picture. Uh, we live in a world that we've already talked about. It, it's totally messed up. It's not the way it's supposed to be. You don't have to look far on this campus to see that or in our world to know that that's true. Uh, but because Jesus died and because death couldn't hold him, there's now a power in this world re- working to reverse the effects of sin and death the forces of death in our world. And the amazing thing is the people that have access to this power are us who believe. The church, God's people. That's where the power is found. And, you know, a lot of people read this and think like, oh, so Christians can like start like zapping people and, you know, bringing people back to life and stuff. And that's not really what this is talking about. It's talking more about 
like the kind of power that makes the church go from being like 12 people 2,000 years ago to covering the globe today and existing in places like China, even though the government is doing everything to squash it, even though most people in the church, like us, are kind of idiots and mess things up all the time too. Like there's all this opposition from the outside and all this opposition from ourselves within God's people, and yet the church is around today and growing. How did that happen? Resurrection power. Um, it's talking, it's more like the power that, how, you know, how do selfish people start to put others before themselves? It's resurrection power. It happens in the company of God's people. Uh, how, do, you know, how do people that uh, never wanted to listen to God become people that say no to sin and yes to righteousness? It's resurrection power. Do you know how that power is unleashed today? It's when we proclaim the grace of God among his people today. This is really just what RUF is all about. Um, You know, we at RUF believe that this message, the gospel, has there's power in it. And we talk all the time about it because that's where the power is. It can take situations that are unbelievably sad and bad and make them unbelievably hopeful and good. Uh, And we believe that it happens in community. When we gather together and we seek to know his truth and we kind of spur each other on toward the truth, reminding each other of the truth and draw others in to experience this truth, this glorious gospel. And slowly the, the curse is reversed. Uh, the power of death becomes, you know, overtaken by life. And it's this kind of secret power because all we're doing is pretty simple. We just get together on Wednesday nights and we sing some songs. We hang out together. We study the Bible. We do some other things, trips and fun things together. We play Puno and, you know, there's nothing, uh, exploding kittens, other games, silly games like that. And, uh, but and that doesn't seem like much, but Paul says that's where the resurrection power lies, when God's people come together around his word. There's power, there's power for us to change as we enter into that. Uh, do you, I want to ask you, do you know that power in your life? Do you know that hope that comes from God? from being called by God? Do you know the extent of your value? Do you know that to God you are exceedingly valuable? And if you do, I'll invite you to the same thing that Paul invites you to. Come know it more. Come know it in the midst of God's people, in the midst of community. Let's watch as resurrection power gets unleashed as we come to know it more. If you don't know it, You need to know that it's only found by putting your faith in Jesus. You know, this passage begins by talking about, I heard of your faith. And faith is just saying, I need this to be true. Badly. And so I'll rest my weight on it. I'll give my life over to it. And that's where life is found. Uh, So let's pray that God would work uh, this knowledge into us more uh, as we continue to gather this semester. Let's pray. 
Uh, Heavenly Father, we uh, desperately need to know you more. Uh, We don't often know that. We think, uh, I think I need many other things besides knowing you more, but I pray that you would change my heart and all of our hearts to uh, come to see the importance and just how it is everything to know you, know your grace, know your hope, uh, know your love, your power. I pray that you would work that into all of our hearts, Lord, more and more. Uh, Make us the people we were meant to be. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.